Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Inside the Writer's Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is Pulitzer Prize winner Geraldine Brooks, author of the new novel Horse. Geraldine, welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. It's great to be inside the Writer's Studio. So this novel is set in three different time periods. We have the mid-20th century, uh, the mid-19th century, and then we have sort of 2019-2020. What thematically do you feel is sort of the link between those, those moments in American history? The link is the remarkable racehorse Lexington, who is the historical spine and the inspiration for the book. I heard about this horse and the remarkable story of his success as not only a horse of blistering speed and powerful endurance uh, who survived the Civil War uh, and went on to become the greatest stud sire in American history, but that story reverberates in so many different directions that surprised me as a novelist. I thought I was just going to be writing a story about a racehorse, and then it turns out that I'm writing a history of race relations because so many of the of the black horsemen whose skills built the thoroughbred his, uh, industry in this country uh, trained or cared for the horse. And then uh, it becomes a story of art as well, the paintings of the horse that have extraordinary, mysterious fates and provenances that I had to follow. And then the science around the horse, uh, the skeleton of the horse ended up in the Smithsonian Institution and the whole business of studying old bones to see what they can tell us is another fascinating element. Yeah. So as you said, this is, this is sort of tied together by this racehorse named Lexington, who in his time was as famous, maybe more famous than, than Secretariat, than Seabiscuit, than other horses that we've heard of. And yet probably most of your readers may not have heard of this horse uh, going into it. How, how did you discover this story and, and what about it at, at the moment of discovery made you feel well, there's something there's something that needs to be written about here? Well, I was at lunch and this was just a coincidence and very lucky for me because another guest at the lunch was an official from the Smithsonian Institution and he was regaling the table with the story of the, the odd job that he'd just completed, which was transporting the skeleton of a famous 19th century racehorse from the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. to its new home at the International Museum of the Horse in Kentucky. And then he started telling the story of the horse's racing career and all the twists and turns and setbacks and, and triumphs and then what happened to the horse in the Civil War. And at that point, you know, I had put down my, my knife and fork and my lunch was uneaten and I was absolutely convinced that this was going to be the theme for my next novel. And... and- at what point did you sort of feel, okay, I, this is not just a novel about a 19th century horse, but this is a novel that pulls all the way through to, to 2019 and 2020, uh, another 
sort of traumatic moment in, in American history because it's in the it, it, we're dealing in the sort of pre and during COVID era. Um, how did how did it go from being this story of a real life racehorse in one period to being this novel that that goes across 150 years? Well, you know, I sat down to write a story of a racehorse and immediately I encountered the story of the horse's first trainer who was a formerly enslaved black man named Harry Lewis who trained some of the most successful racehorses of his era and the story of his life and the traumas involved in that which led me to the other black horsemen whose extraordinary skills uh, were appreciated by the white owners of the racehorses, but these men were often enslaved or formerly enslaved. So even though they had a rather unique position in this brutal system, they still didn't have any autonomy over their actual lives. And I wanted to foreground their achievements and their contribution, but you can't paper over the fact that it is happening within a very precarious and brutal System. So once I was writing that, I already had the contemporary thread on the go because I wanted to address the science around the skeleton and what they do at the Smithsonian. This is something I love to do as a novelist is get up in people's business and find out about their extraordinary jobs. So I knew I would have a contemporary thread with Smithsonian scientists and art conservators in the book. Uh, and then I realized that I can't treat the story of race as if it's over and done with because it clearly isn't and I had to let the reverberations of our struggles with race and injustice echo into the contemporary story as well. Mm -hmm. the, one of the things I found remarkable about reading uh, especially the passages in the 19th century is just the um the sense of being with a horse, the, the, the sound, the smell, what it's like for a foal to be born, um, what it's like in that barn. Did you, when you were working on it, have you spent time around horses before? Was this new to you? Did you spend time around horses while you were working on the book? I love horses. Uh, horses were my midlife crisis. I didn't grow up with horses, but where some people might go out and buy a sports car when they hit middle age, I got a little black pony and I became horse crazy. And I didn't want to do anything except hang out with this horse and learn how to ride this horse. And, you know, I'll tell you, I wasn't getting much writing done. And this is a problem if that's how you put the food on the table for the kids, you know. So <laughs> it was very lucky for me that I encountered the story of Lexington right about the time the red ink was about to overrun the balance sheet. And I was able to um, turn my passion into my work day and my, my obsession became my research. Yeah. But everything that happens with the horse is something that's happened with me and my horse one way or another. I, I'll admit I read this book during when I when I picked it up I was in the United States and I think it was like in between the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness and so horse racing was sort of in the news and then we came over to England and it was just the other day we had um, the Derby and so it's, it's I, I've been sort of aware of horse racing but give us a sense you you write in there afterward about researching in the um, in the turf press of the day give us a sense of the place of horse racing in 19th century American culture, especially during the time that, that this race was, this horse was racing. You can't overstate 
what a national passion this was. It was a national pastime that exceeded any kind of um, uh, baseball or NFL. I mean, it's like the NFL if everybody in America played football because we're still an agrarian society in the 1850s. Everybody rode horses, everybody had horses, and everybody, and I'm talking all classes and all colors, because this was before Jim Crow and segregation, even though it was in the period of enslavement, there was still a great mixing of people at the track Mm -hmm. and in the business of caring for the horses and riding the horses, as well as in the stands. People gathered to watch these horses. It was a national obsession. There were three newspapers just devoted to horse racing, published in New York City, um, you, you can't imagine what what an obsession it was for people. And the, the races themselves were very different. These horses raced typically for four miles mm. three times in the one race meeting. So they were heat races. And in, in four miles, there's a lot more tactics and it's a lot more about endurance as well as blistering speed so these horses were fast and they were strong and their jockeys were super skilled and you know if you think about a four mile race that's more than double the length of the Kentucky Derby so you can do a lot and it 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 was it was fascinating well let's talk about riding a little bit Um, first of all tell us about the sort of the challenges the stylistic challenges of riding in these three different time periods how do you how do you capture the cadence of voice in a time period when you can't listen to recordings of voices? And, and how do you vary your writing from one section to the other as we move through time? So it's very important to me to get the historical voice right. And um, if I can, I'll just tell you an anecdote that kind of explains how this works for me. Um, I was talking to a British author I admire called Jim Crace, and he had written a book set in biblical Israel. And he talked about researching that book by going on a camping expedition in the uh, Judean desert with a Bedouin guide. And the first morning of that trip, uh, the guide brings him a cup of cardamom-scented coffee and says, Mr. Jim, how did you sleep? And he said, Ahmed, I slept like a log. And then he said he raised his eyes to these bare rock-ribbed hillsides and realizes there were no logs in Ahmed's world. And so he says, Ahmed, how did you sleep? And Ahmed said, Mr. Jim, I slept like a dead donkey. (laughs) So ever since Jim Crace told me that story, I have always thought about my job as a historical novelist is finding the logs, getting rid of them and putting in the dead donkeys. And you do that by reading everything you could possibly find that was written by the people of that period. And luckily in the immediate antebellum period, there's so many letters. Um, People wrote a lot and, you know, even people of limited education, I think they expressed themselves in writing a lot better than some of us do today. Mm -hmm. Their expressions were quite eloquent and they were very vivid and they were often based on the things that they knew, the agricultural things. Now, finding voices of enslaved people at that time is harder Mm -hmm. because they weren't allowed to be literate in most cases, but there are some, you know, enslaved people who, most notably Frederick Douglass, who wrote beautifully, and Harriet Ann Jacobs. So you can find some narratives, and you can also find 
from a little bit later period, you know, the the um, the oral histories in the Smithsonian are incredibly valuable, but also in court where they took down verbatim testimony. And there you can often hear enslaved people speaking in their own words. So you just take all that, you scoop it up. And then as your characters need to say something, often that bright shard of appropriate language just drops into your head and onto the page. So that's how I do that. So the novel begins in 2019, and we start with the story of Theo. And one of the things that I found just remarkable about just the, the few opening pages is how much we learn about this character in a single, fairly short scene without it ever feeling like we're being subjected to exposition. You know? um, what did you want your readers to know at the very beginning about this character? And, and how do you reveal that information in a way that's sort of organic to the story? Well... Generally speaking, I'm getting to know the character as I write him. And so I have some ideas about him, but he tells me things. It's, it's, it's very hard to explain, but you, you, you just kind of, you, you're just chipping away as you write. And then suddenly you, you learn something that you didn't know about your own character. It's a bit of a mysterious process, but Theo comes out of, you know, a lot, a lot of listening hard to my friends uh, who were generous enough to take the trouble to share with me their own experiences of being black in contemporary America. And, um, and one of the things that you learn very quickly is that class and education are no defense against all kinds of racism from the most blatant, like um, my friend Professor Henry Louis Gates being dragged off his own porch in handcuffs because he had the temerity to try and open his own front door, mm-hmm. to just the small, thoughtless microaggressions that go on every day. And so it was, you know, it's it's from years and years of listening and, and reading and, and um, just trying to understand what it's like you know even even in the best circumstances today not not even speaking about the worst yeah. theo is is one of the main characters in the in the most contemporary part of the story and the other one is jess and they are one of them is an art historian one of them is a natural scientist what do you I, I I found that a fascinating juxtaposition of careers. what do you, what do you see as the sort of relationship between those two fields of study? Well, you can't be a really good artist unless you understand anatomy. And the deepest way to understand anatomy is to articulate a skeleton of a creature. <laughs> so I guess there's that. Um, and it was interesting that in in the uh, historical section, there is a character based on an actual equestrian painter called Thomas Scott. And Thomas Scott started out as a pharmacist and then decided that he, he was fascinated by horses and horse racing and he wanted to paint these animals. And so his apprenticeship was to go to a knackery and butcher horses mm. to learn everything he could about horse anatomy. And that's why his paintings are so accurate. Wow. Hmm. So, um, you have, there, I, I love reading your sentences. You talk about race and there's a marvelous sentence that I think captures a lot about race in this book. I'll just read it for my, for our listeners. 
all manner of misfortune can come of a black man and a white man in the same room with a knife, even if no drop of blood is spilled. I mean, to me, that sentence captures a lot about what happens in this novel. Um, so I wonder if we could focus down for just a second on sentences. And yours are, yours are such a joy to read. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the nuts and bolts of beautiful writing. I mean, how do you just put together a beautiful sentence and how do you know that's it. I don't, I don't need to chisel at this one anymore. This is, this is it. You know? <laughs> I'm not sure that it's ever it, you know, I, <laughs> I, they, they have to clutch it from my cold dead hands, you know, <laughs> my manuscript because I'm revising up to the last minute. And even when you're not supposed to do major revisions on whatever it is, the second or third past pages, I'm still, still scratching things out and putting things in. So I don't think it's ever done, but I do have a practice every day before I start writing is to grab my Norton anthology of poetry and let it fall open at any page and just read that poem. Mm. And it to me, it's like the, it's the inspiration to me because I think poets are, to use a horse analogy, um, they're the Olympic eventers of writing. And, you know, they can, they can do dressage and jump over ridiculous obstacles, whereas, you know, Prose writers can plot around an arena on a fat pony. <laughs> um, well, let's go back to race for just a moment because one of the one of the moments that happens fairly early in the novel that sort of begins to connect these two or three time periods um, is when Theo is he's he's researching sort of the history of depictions of black people in artwork in the 18th and 19th centuries, um, and he finds this painting that sort of challenges his his thinking about this. Can, can you tell us a little bit about, about Theo's thesis and how this painting he finds by Edward Troy sort of makes him look at that thesis in a, in a different light? The truth is that in the 19th century and the 18th century, when black people were depicted in white artists' work, they're often caricatures. Uh, they weren't individuals. They were, you know, black features were very exaggerated in a kind of cartoonish way or the black figure was very much a subordinate kind of accessory to whatever the white subject of the painting was. But it's really interesting in these antebellum equestrian paintings that the Black horsemen are portrayed as real individuals. And this is true in Troy's work, uh, particularly. He seemed to be able to cut through the noise of prejudice and see the man that was standing right there. And the trainers are portrayed with this incredible individualism and dignity, as are the grooms and the jockeys that he painted. And so I borrowed, it's an idea of Frederick Douglass as he wrote a very powerful essay about depictions of black subjects in Western art. And so I give his essay to Theo as something to think about. And Theo is interested in trying to find out more about the individual stories of the black horsemen and why, why they were depicted in that way. You use 
for some characters use a first person narrative and for some use a, a third person narrative, which I found very interesting that we sort of shift at times. Um, what, what do you, what are you up to narratively there? And how do you, how do you decide who, who gets which of those point of view uh, settings? You know, if I could tell you, I'd be really glad. I have no idea. <laughs> Just sometimes I hear a voice in my head and it's very clear. That's the way this guy talks. That's the way he sounds. I like to write in the first person because I think it's got an immediacy and it draws the reader in into the point of view of the character. Well, you know, other times it's easier for me to stand outside and not to presume I know the inner life of a character or not the entire inner life of a character the way you have to with a first-person narrator. So, you know, I could have had more first-person narrators. I think I could have absolutely heard Jess's voice because she's so closely based on myself as a Australian, you know, nerdy girl who comes to America and finds a career she didn't expect to have. And uh, I could have done her in first person, and I have no idea why I didn't. Well, let's talk about structure for a minute. One of the things that this really drew me to this novel is that it's told in three different time frames, and the first novel I wrote was told in three different time frames. And I can remember sort of laying out all these pieces of paper and trying to figure out how it was going to all fit together. Um, you go back and forth between the 19th century and 2019 for almost 200 pages. Um, and then we have our first scene in the 1950s. So talk to us a little bit about how you decided to structure the novel and, and especially why that third time period comes in as far into the novel as it does. I know. Isn't that weird? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you have to take a lot of, I, I work very instinctively. I, I'm not a big planner and I don't have detailed outlines. I kind of feel my way in the dark and it's a bit of an act of trust. Like at some point I'll, figure out what I am doing here. At the beginning, I really am not sure. And in this book particularly, it was challenging. I didn't know exactly how these threads were fully going to connect with each other. And it didn't resolve itself till quite late in the process. And I was starting to sweat, you know. I really was like, <laughs> give, me a, give me an idea here. But I can't exactly explain. I just knew that the Martha Jackson material, she is the gallerist who um, has, a, has a portrait of Lexington, and this is true. She had this portrait of Lexington. It was in her bequest to the Smithsonian after she died. It was the only realistic 19th century traditional painting in that bequest. Everything else was a de Kooning or a Pollock or some edgy piece of contemporary art because that was what she loved and that was what she did was champion the, uh, the, the most extreme innovators in modern art. So why did she have this? And I knew I wanted to bring the story to her but I also found that as I had her story more distributed through the novel, it was interrupting the energy and pace of the ending of the book. Mm -hmm. So first of all, it was bringing her back from towards the ending into the middle. And then I realized that it would make sense 
to bring anyway it's it's a it's a I can't really explain it is yeah. the short answer <laughs> you so you talked about um, a real life gallery owner, real life paintings, a real life horse, real life trainers, um, a real life skeleton, uh, all all of this um, real history, and yet and yet this is a novel. There are also fictional characters in here as well, um, and I I feel like with historical novels, there's always this pull between wanting to be honest to the to the truth to the extent that we can know truth of the history, but also having a duty as a novelist to to tell a story that works as a novel. How do you balance those, those two things? How do you balance history and creativity? I try to follow the line of fact as far as it leads because I love doing that. I love to, and particularly if I can unearth a little bit more of the story through my own research, that, that's a good day for me if I find out something uh, and can nail it down um, and clarify something that's been garbled or has been told in contradictory ways. And if I can get to the truth of it, it's great. Because I really believe what Mark Twain said, and I've actually used it as the epigraph to the afterword. Uh, he had a wonderful quote, um, fiction is obliged to stick to possibilities, truth isn't. Mm. And everything in this book that seems the most unlikely is the truth. Yeah. And everything that seems like it could easily have happened is the fiction. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, um, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give our listeners some insights into you and into your writing. So if you're ready, we will begin. What word do you love to work into your writing? I get into trouble. My late husband used to castigate me for using desiccated and gnarled too often. <laughs> he used to always put a red line through desiccated and gnarled. <laughs> what word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Diarrhea. <laughs> Where's your favorite place to write? In the kitchen with a roaring fire in the uh, kitchen hearth in the winter and under the apple tree in the spring. Where could you never write? Yeah, I can write anywhere. Oh. That's the training of being a foreign correspondent. Mm -hmm. You can't be precious about where you write. You've got to file that story. So what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? I was raised by a father who was a proofreader. I pay attention to all of them. Oh, good. I, I, that's my favorite answer. <laughs> what is the first book you remember reading? The first book that transported me and carried me away was The Valley of Adventure by Enid Blyton, which was about Nazi art looters. What are you reading now? I am reading a nonfiction book called Worn by Sophie Tannhauser, and it is a fascinating adventure and um, a tale that we need to pay attention to about the cost of what we put on our backs environmentally and in terms of the human misery of the fashion industry, but it is told as, a, as an incredible travel adventure. Um, what book would you like to have written? The Overstory by Richard Powers. 
What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? A science fiction novel. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? That my novel made them see the world in a way they had not considered before. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and my guest today has been Geraldine Brooks, whose novel Horse is available wherever books are sold. Geraldine, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. This was really great fun. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Remember that you can get great audiobooks and support Bookmarks or your local independent bookstore by visiting Libro.fm. Go to libro.fm and use the code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. I'll be taking a break this summer, but I'll be back with new episodes in August, and I'll look forward to sharing three new books of my own with you. My novel, The Enigma Affair, about a small-town librarian and a professional assassin who team up to solve a 75-year-old Nazi mystery, will be out in September, as will my middle-grade adventure, The Book of the Seven Spells, about three children who find a magical library, and Lewis Carroll, Formed by Faith, a religious biography of the author of Alice in Wonderland. And we'll also have guests from the upcoming Bookmarks Festival in September. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion. (laughs) 